If you got a Bible, which I hope you do, go to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Ephesians 5, 22. We're going to be talking about marriage, husbands, wives, and all that fun stuff. A little bit of preamble before we get into where we're going today. I try my best to not ever be that preacher who has part one and part two sermons. And you walk in at part two and you're like, I'm so lost right now. I have no idea what we're talking about. Today is going to be a part two kind of sermon. You're not going to be lost on what we're talking about. You're just going to be less equipped to really live out what we're talking about if you don't go back and listen to last week. Last week, we leaned into the why, we leaned into the deep theological rooting as to why Paul would say these things and put them into God's word, as why a husband would do this, how a wife would do this. We got into the deeper theological principle. And again, if you don't understand that stuff, you're never going to be leaning in, being able to live out the how, practical stuff that we're going to lean into today. So if you're coming in, you have not uh, listened to or podcasted last week's, I would just heavily encourage you that if you want to live out some of the things we talk about today, please some point this week, go back and listen to what we leaned into last week. All right, here's the content. This is the word of God, best part of our service today. Here we go. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right. Based on all the content that we just discovered and all the ideas and thoughts that are beginning to conjure up in your head, I want to kind of press pause, hit the brakes on those, and I want to take you uh, to another place. I want to take you to your wedding day. All right, if you're in the room and you are married, raise your hand uh, if you've been married more than 10 years in the room. All right, raise your hand if you've been married more than 20 years in the room, 30 years in the room. All right, where we got? Okay, way to go. Yeah, praise God for you people. Um, Raise your hand if you've married more than 40 years in the room, 50. I got some more 50s, 60s. We lost some there. All right, we're somewhere in between there, all right? So in our room right here, there's some people who have been married for somewhere between 50 and 60 years together. That's a lot of time, all right? So congratulations, way to go to you guys. I want to take you to your wedding day, whether it was 50 years ago or if it's maybe even something that you have in hopes and plans for the future. All of us, at some point, we've given some thought to this idea of marriage. Even you young people in the room, you've kind of thought, well, what? you go to a wedding, you're like, I wonder what my one of these is going to look like, all right? So if you are married and have been married, whether you are currently or not, I want you to think back to your wedding day. What was that like? And if you've been married a couple of times or you had a couple of weddings, just think about the one you're most fond of. Um, <laughs> What was it like? You know, how awkward was it? You know, what was the drama or the tension that happened there? What was the thing that just warmed your heart the most? What was the dances like? How did all that go? What was the food like? Do you love your pictures from your wedding or you despise them and, you know, they're somewhere tucked under a bed in a guest bedroom somewhere? What was that day like? One of the things that most people have in common on their wedding day is as the bride and groom get in the car and they drive off on the back of the car or whatever they happen to be driving away in, what is painted in usually white shoe polish on the back of that car? Just married. And they ride off into the sunset under this giant banner of we are just married. And on a Disney movie, that's where the movie ends. All right. Everything after there is not worth writing about. But the more I pastor church, the more I am married myself, the more I know that we are in danger 
of that sign that was on the back of the car as we got married becoming our reality in marriage, that we're just married. Like, we're not happy. We're just married. We're not in love. We're just married. I'm not attracted to them anymore. I'm just married to them. And somehow we can go from this bright, happy, full of hope, full of joy, just married to our 30, 40, 15, 10, sometimes maybe even earlier, year five or so of going, yeah, I don't know how we went from just married to we're just married. I think, though, some of the reason why we get to that place is because we don't understand real love. Jesus is true Love redefining words that he spoke in the Gospel of John. When he, after exposing himself in a moment of vulnerability, took off his outer garments, tied a towel around his waist, and got down and washed his disciples' feet. And then after he did that, he looked those men in the eye, and everybody knew who was in charge in that moment. He looked those guys in the eye after having done that to them and said, As I have loved you, I need you to love each other. And then a few verses later, he would go on to say, greater love has no one than this, that he would lay his life down for somebody else. See, the reason we go from just marriage, full of hope, and the reason that we then kind of stand on things and go, well, we're just married, is somewhere in the midst, we forgot about sacrificial love. I would make the argument today, and in spite of all the things we're getting ready to talk about, that there is nothing romantic, there's nothing more, um, dare I say, even um, exotic, there's nothing more attractive than sacrificial love between a husband and wife. There is no greater reason for why marriages die. There is no greater reason for why divorce happens, why affairs happen, why the lies, backstabbing, and betrayal happens than the lack of sacrificial love. And Paul knows this, and so he tells the church in Ephesus, first and foremost, before he ever starts talking about marriage, he leans into them and says, listen, We have to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, we submit ourselves to one another. It was his way of saying, we're going to, because of the love that we have for our friends and fellow members of the body of Christ, we're going to have to sacrifice ourselves, lay ourselves, our needs, our wants, our preferences, our desires, our proclivities. We're going to lay those down so that we can love and serve and care for other people. And then he turns a corner and he goes, here's one of the primary laboratories where we're going to get to live this out marriage. And he talks to the wives and he says these words, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And last week we leaned into this very heavily. And I would just, before we go further here into fleshing this all out, and I know today I'm going to talk about some things that are going to be very practical. And as I go through this, I'm going to let you know that today's message is unlike many that we do. Most messages, you'll hear a pastor say something like, don't listen to a sermon and think about this. It's like, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this. Oh, I wish my husband was listening to this. Or, well, you know, oh, I wish my my mother-in-law was here. She needs to hear this. I'm going to do you have a link to that, sir? I would love to send that to her. Most messages, I would say, don't ever sit at church and think about what you're hearing like that. Think about what does this mean for me primarily? Let me not look over the plank in my eye to see the speck of sawdust in somebody else's. But here I'm going to give some permission. If you're a married couple in this room, you actually do owe it to your spouse to, as we go through this, go, I hope my husband is listening. I hope my wife is listening. You two exist for each other to help each other into these things. And in the right way, and don't necessarily quote me, quote God's word. Oh, Pastor Trent said, well, just let the Bible talk for itself. Don't, you don't have to lean into all the things I say. If you do, do it very carefully and cautiously and uh, make sure you get me right. (laughs) But men in the room, I know that last week as we leaned into this hard reality that in order for us to see what it means to be a godly husband, we have to look to the cross. For many of you men in the room, our our men in the room who long to be married one day, that was a not necessarily a soul-crushing burden, but that was a burden for sure. To go, man, I see how far I am away from Jesus on the cross to my wife. I have such a hard time sacrificing for her and laying my life down for her. And maybe last week you walked away and you felt some condemnation. You felt like giving up because of how far you were away from the standard that we set out there. And I would just remind you to check your definitions. 
when you feel that thing in your gut that makes you realize you have not measured up, if you're in Christ, friend, please do not feel condemnation. In the book of Romans, Paul is talking to the church there. He says, for those of us who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us in Christ. What you felt, sir, I pray that you actually label it the right way. You felt conviction, and conviction is a good thing. The Holy Spirit brought that conviction, and the Holy Spirit will use that conviction to lead you to repentance as you realize you are not a bad husband. You have made bad mistakes. You have done things wrong, but you are not a bad husband. In Christ, you are not condemned to the depths of being bad husband forever, no point in ever staying marriage. You actually are called, because here's what I want you to understand, guys in the room. God loves you enough to not call you to any calling to which he won't provide the power for you to actually live that calling out. And so if he's called you to be a godly husband, he will provide the power for you to be a godly husband. And many of us in this room, you had no father, no biological father to show you what this actually looks like. And I'm here as living proof to tell you, to show you, and we will help you the best we can. Even if you did not have a man in your life to show you this, your heavenly father will, without a doubt, show you this. The heavenly, true groom, Jesus will show you how to be groom to your wife. Now to the wives in the room, first and foremost, I wanna say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being patient with us men. So much. Secondly, I would love to remind you that your husband has a Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit will work on him and work in him and work through him to help you in the midst of your... <laughs> long-suffering, <laughs> but I would just kindly and gently remind you that you are not his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will not surrender to your timetable for your husband's transformation. He has his own, and I would just encourage you to the best of your abilities, make sure you're surrendered to the Holy Spirit for him and not your will for him, and make sure those line up because they're not always exactly the same. And then last thing I'll say to the wives in the room, this is just pro tip, as we get ready to talk through and walk through a lot of this. Most of the time, when you express your frustrations to your husband, no, not most of the time. Now, some of you women, you're just full of wisdom. A mistake that sometimes wives can make, again, I'm gonna be as generous as I can here, to not have to, I'm trying my best to avoid emails. Um, <laughs> Sometimes the time you will bring your grievance or the thing you wish he would begin to do. And again, these are good things. These are godly things. This is you telling him, hey, here's where you failed. Here's where you didn't live up to my expectations, not based off of my own preferences, but on what I read in God's word that you're supposed to be. The times where you give those to him are actually sometimes the times where are least opportune for him to hear those, receive those, and actually change. In the moment of his failure, most men would tell you, in the moment where they do fail and they do mess up, that is not the time where that's the, okay, that's where I can blow up and let them all know these things and everything else. And most of the time, sometimes it happens at the end of the day. He's got up, he's gone to work, he's done all those things, he comes home, and that thing that you've kind of been gnawing on all day, he does the one little last thing to kind of put it over the edge, and it just all comes out. And so... I know you have a list, ladies. Every woman in this room has a list, all right, of the things you wish your husband would be doing, all right? The best time to lean into those things under the grace of God and under the guidance of your Holy Spirit is a time when things are good. And most of us in marriage, we know this. We start trying to fix things when things are what? Bad and broken. Look, the, when, uh, think about NASCAR, when a car gets in a big old wreck out on the track, do the guys just go out there and just like start working on it right there? No, where do they take it back to? They take it back to the garage, they take it back to the shop. They get things away and that's where they begin to work on those things and express how they need to change and how they need to fix. And so ladies in the room, I would just say again, just, just pro tip on, because we're gonna go through a lot of things that you're gonna, you're gonna hear and you're gonna go, I wish my husband would do that better. Don't call him out on that. When you, see it do, when you see him do it worse or when you see him not live up. I'm telling you as a man, you're gonna undermine what you really want to happen. Find a time, make the time, get somebody to watch the kids 
And, and, and husbands, if you're worth your salt, you will lean into this and go, honey, I want to make some time to be able to lean into this. I want to know how to help, how to lead, how to serve better. But these are the ways where, again, like my hope of for us as a church is that we can do everything we can to have as many godly marriages represented here as, as a church as possible. Because I do believe that's one of our best evangelistic tools. And that's not just from me. It's like a church growth kind of guy. That's from scripture. That the world will be able to look on to godly marriages and see the marriage between Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. And it would glorify him and magnify him for the bride and groom that we are. And so we come to a passage like this and it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, I want to make a couple things really clear right here. And a lot of times this gets missed when we have conversations around marriage. What he's saying here is that in a gospel marriage, as far as who the wife takes her cues and leadership from, she actually takes her cues in how she should be a godly wife, not from how Jesus was Jesus. She actually takes her cues from Christ's church, the bride. He said, wives, submit to your husbands the way the church submits to Christ. So it's Paul's way of saying, wives, if we want to know how to be a better wife, we look to the way Jesus loved, cared for, and served the church. We look to how the church surrenders to Jesus's leadership. And then he says to the husbands, husbands, we take our cues from Christ the groom. Now, I'm going to do something that's kind of dangerous. I'm going to put myself inside of the mind of a woman. If I'm in your mind, I'm going, why does my husband get Jesus and I get the church? Like the church is messy. The church is the one that he had to cleanse. The church is the one he had to wash with water. The church is the one that needed fixing up, redemption, restoration. Why, why do I get the church and he gets Jesus? I want Jesus. Are you saying I don't have to follow Jesus? I just look at what the church does? No, that's not all of what I'm saying. The first thing I need you to understand on, on this side of things, women, is, is this. And this is, this is huge. Jesus says he is the what of the church. He says he is the head. Okay? And he says the church is the what? The body. All right? Now, how many bodies have you seen disconnected from heads? If they are, they're not going really well. You know, things are bad. Somebody made a mistake. What you have to understand here is that they are one. Women, you're looking shoulders down to what the body of Christ is doing. How does the body submit to the head's leadership? What the head is seeing, what the head is hearing, what the head is comprehending, what the head is speaking. Women, you're looking at the same, you both are looking at the same body. You're looking at different parts of it. Men, you're called to look at the head. How's the head leading? How's the head guiding? How's the head doing this? But remember, don't for a second think that we're looking at two separate entities. We'll get into this more in a second. But Jesus says that I have come to make my union with the church so we are now one. I am its head. The church is my body. And so, wives, what that looks like is you take your cues on how to follow and surrender and even submit to your husband by looking at the way the church surrenders, submits, and follows Christ. And husbands, we look at how we lead our wife in a way where she would be joyful and exuberant at surrendering and submitting to us by looking at how Jesus led, surrendered, and loved the church. And we're going to spend a lot of time Talking about, okay, practically speaking, what in the world does that look like? So Ephesians 5.24, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the question that we come to first, and this is kind of the wife's question, if the call on a wife is to submit to her husband as Christ has submitted to the church, then we've got to ask the question first, well, how does the church submit to Christ? Because ladies in the room, this is where you figure out how to be a godly wife, not from um, a book, not from an article, not from a blog, not from a, a podcast, even Christian podcast. If you want to really figure out how to be the best Christian wife you can be, you have to look at the way the church submits and surrenders to Christ. And I wish there was something else that I could say that was the reason. 
But that is God's word. So please don't kill the messenger. Please don't shoot me. But let's look into this together and kind of have a deep dive study on, okay, how in the world does a church submit to Christ? If you're taking notes, here's what I would say. First and foremost, the church submits to Christ joyfully because the church looks to the cross and sees what Jesus did. It sees how he laid down his life for us. And so we don't begrudgingly go, okay, Jesus, if I have to. No, we go, Jesus, I, I would love, I cannot wait to surrender to you because I see what you've done for me. I joyfully surrender to you. And two, I joyfully surrender to you because you're not leaving me out here as a separate intimate entity. You are making me one with you. I'm walking with you. I'm talking with you because you're the head guiding me as the body. Next, how should the church submit to Christ? It submits knowing that we as a church, our only hope is in Christ. We can't do this on our own. Now, again, uh, I can start preaching different messages and preach a lot of self-help stuff and give you five reasons or five ways to live your best life now. And we could hire um, some different pastors who have more talent but way less character. And maybe things would start growing. But here's the truth. It really is not possible to lead a growing, thriving bride of Christ if Jesus is not fully the leader of it. And so another way that we do this, the way the church submits to Christ, is we fully acknowledge that our only hope about being fruitful is if he is really leading and if we are really in tune with him. So ladies, last thing here, how does the church submit to Christ? It submits to Christ in honor. I'll lean in here because I think this is, in my opinion, this is maybe the one that would be the most win you over, has the most win you over potential to go, okay, I'm gonna have to love my husband the way the church surrenders and submits to Christ. What is one of the primary ways the church does that? I think the way the church submits to Christ that is most winsome for us to be able to look at and see is how it shows honor to Christ that for some wild stretch of the imagination, he would look at people like us and say, you're going to be my bride and I'm going to use you as my bride for this grand mission that is the total redemption of the world. I'm gonna use you to be the hands and feet of my gospel. I may be the head, but the body, which the bride is called and metaphorically used to do, the body is the thing that's reaching out. The head comes up with the plan, but what does the body do? The body goes to the jungle in Uganda and spreads that gospel. The body goes across the street and invites uh, the new couple to church with a brand new thing of cookies. The gospel feeds the people in the community. The gospel creates environments where people can come in. That's what the body does. And so, ladies in the room, when you go, okay, well, how does the church lovingly submit to Jesus? It does it with this immense honor to go, somehow, someway, you chose me. You could have done it a hundred different ways. You could have lined angels up. You could have had miracles upon miracles upon miracles, and you chose to use a broken vessel like us to show the world your gospel. And hear me, this is wild. Jesus chose not to be a bachelor. Jesus intentionally chose not to just be a single guy. Now he lived on earth completely as a single man. But in the grand cosmic Jesus, he chose not to identify himself as a bachelor. Here's why. And I think this is another reason why he never got married while he's on earth. Because he knew he had a bride coming for him. And so in his grand identity, he says, I am not a single guy. I have a bride. And that is you. That is me. That's us. And so the church goes, what an honor that we would have a husband like this to lead God and protect us. So then the question becomes, okay, well, if that's how the church does that to Christ, or the how the church should, rather, well, then how does a wife submit to her husband? Guys, or ladies, it is the same way to run back through and apply it a little bit more in a biblical sense. And again, there is some breakdown here because you know what your husband is not? Perfect. <laughs> he is not Christ. And like Christ, he's not infinite. He doesn't have infinite power to be able to do these things that Christ can do for the church. But what does it look like? It looks like joyfully acknowledging that my husband is the one who's leading. Now again, I know that's not easy, ladies, to just joyfully submit to your husband. <laughs> 
But in the same way that the church, when she sees what Jesus is doing and how amazing it is, it does come natural and it is joyful. I know it's a twofold coin, ladies, that if your husband is loving you the way Christ loved the church, you will be joyfully submitting to that. And again, that's what we're going to get into the husbands in a second. So, so wait, because I believe if a husband is really doing his job in this, a wife will. This is something naturally the wife will be joyfully ready to submit and surrender to it. Again, on the question, how should the wife submit to her husband? Same thing we talked about with the church. Without longing or trying to be in charge, that's what that submission will look like. It will look like a wife going, I know, not based on my opinion or my preference or what I saw in the home growing up, but I know based on the authority of God's word, our family will actually be most fruitful if my husband is doing his God-ordained job to lead it. And that's, gotta, that's just gotta be a deep heart conviction inside of every, every, every woman in this room if you wanna have a gospel marriage to go, it will thrive the most if my husband is doing that. And because you realize that, you then in humility go, because of that, I do not want to be in charge. My deep desire is not to control everything. My deep desire is to do everything within my power to encourage and help him in his leadership because the family will be most fruitful if he is doing his job. Now, please do not hear what I did not say. I am not saying that the only way your family can be fruitful if it's a husband leading. That is not what I'm saying. I grew up in a home that is the exact contradiction to that. It was fruitful because a woman of God was doing a lot. In many of your homes, it may be that very same way, but it will be most fruitful. Again, don't shoot the messenger. It's according to God's word. It'll be most fruitful if the husband is doing that. And so the wife joyfully goes, I don't want to be in control. I want you to be. The next one here is the same thing we talked about that I think is the most winsome thing from the church. It's submitting with honor and going, husband, it is an honor that you would choose me to partner with you in this mission that is to glorify God through our marriage and our family. And the wife would know that there is no way that this scoundrel is ever going to be able to glorify God through this relationship without my help. The same way that Jesus would go, there's no way that I can fully show the world my love in 3D, living color, without my bride. For the wives in the room to go, there is no way that my marriage to my husband will be able to fully glorify God without my humble submission to his God-ordained leadership. And I know that's not easy, but that is where the women of God, marriages, uh, the wives in the room, Take our cues from the way the church surrenders and submits to Jesus. All right? Now, husbands, let's get back to our side of things. All right? Because so much of what she's doing is contingent on what we're doing. Paul makes it very clear in verse 23. He says, husband is the head the way that Christ is the head of the church. In verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wife the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the question that now we've got to begin to ask is what does Christ do as the head of the church? So if husbands, we take our cues from Christ, he's the head of the church, we have to ask ourselves, that's where I'm getting my cues from. That's where I get what I do as a husband from. So what did he do? Because then I'll know what to do. If I don't ever see what he did, I'm just gonna be looking to culture. I'm gonna be looking for what my dad did and my grandpa did. I'm gonna be looking for what kind of feels right to be what I should do. If I don't actually look to Christ and see what he did, then I'm never gonna know how to lead my wife. I'm never gonna know what it looks like to practice headship in a Christian marriage. To boil this down, we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking this, fellas, but to boil this down into really two iterations of the same category. To put it in a word for you guys, to just make it as easy as possible, it looks like leadership. Leading. I lead the way. I take primary responsibility to lead because that's what I see Jesus doing. The way we're going to talk about it We'll break it down in this idea of leadership. will find its fruition in my providence and protection. 
And both of these, are, there's physical providence and there's physical protection. There's spiritual providing and there's spiritual protecting. We're going to come back to this, so don't freak out because we're definitely getting back here. But what we see in Jesus is that the way Jesus loved and cared for the church is he led the church. And he led the church primarily by providing and protecting. He did plenty of other things. He guided. He communicated with. He empowered the church through the Holy Spirit. But kind of all of those fall under those two big umbrellas. That's why I'm trying to boil it down and make it as easy as possible for you guys. Of What am I supposed to do as a godly husband? I lead through providing and protecting. What do I do as a husband? I lead, protect, provide. Lead, protect, provide. Both on the spiritual plane and on a physical plane. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is I'm going to walk through men in the room. And ladies, please listen in. If you're not married in this room, please listen in because hopefully I'm going to show you the example of what a godly man is supposed to be so that if you are wanting to choose one, you choose the right one. I'm going to show you how Jesus protected, how Jesus provided, and then we're going to look at how a man is called to spiritually and physically do those things as well. Let's look at the protect side first. Let's see how Jesus protects us. It says he did that so that we might, he, he, he gave his life, he furled her love so that he might sanctify her. This word is key in understanding how our God protects us. He protects us by sanctifying us, which means he takes our sin, our shame, and our filth, and he washes away all of its negative, potentially influential parts of our lives so that he can sanctify us, meaning that he redeems us, restores us, forgives us, and then he makes us holy by setting us aside. That key word there, this process of sanctification where we become more and more into who he is calling us to be. The sanctification process happens and it's him protecting us for who we would have been without him, who we would have been if we were left in our sins. He sanctifies her. Again, this is all of us. This is how Jesus loves his bride. He sanctified her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Washing away the sin, this symbolism here to baptism, the symbol in here into how God's word cleanses us and, and makes us actually true. It's this whole Christological argument that he's giving as to what this is him definitely saying this is what Jesus has done for us. This is how Jesus is protecting us from the wrath and the effects of sin in our lives. In verse 27, here's why he did that. Here's why he brought about this protection. He protected us from our sin, from our filth, so that he could present the church to himself. Not just sit the church in, in some castle so the church could feel good about herself. He cleansed the church so he could present the, ch the church back to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, knowing that he's the one who made it clean so that she might be holy and without blemish. This is him from protecting us from how ugly we would have been had he not chose us. So that's Jesus' protection. It's him stepping in doing what we could have never done for ourselves. There's no cleansing agent that is more powerful than his blood. And he steps in and he cleansed us. He protected us from the effects of sin, woke us up to realities of our sinfulness, called us and led us through into repentance. And that's how he protects. So men in the room, taking the cues from Jesus, what does it then look like for us to be spiritual protectors in our home? Again, your call is to be like Jesus and to be one who protects it's on two planes. We're going to talk about them both. It's protecting on a spiritual level and protecting on a physical level. What does it look like to protect spiritually? First and foremost, you've got to understand that there is spiritual danger all out there. That around every corner, there's spiritual danger coming for our families like we may have never, ever experienced before. Things that you can't see, things that you don't know, and it's all around us. And more than ever now, we need warrior fathers, not with spears and swords, but with spiritual discernment to be able to know what's going on in the lives of our wives and the lives of our kids and the lives of our church. And so, fellows in the room, specifically to the wives, what does this look like? I would say your spiritual protection for your wife looks like you putting a shield around her with words of affirmation, words calling her to her true identity in Christ, words that build up her God-ordained confidence. I heard a question that was very convicting to me this week. If your wife got her identity in Christ only by the words you speak to her, what would it be like? If her identity was based on the words you say to her, what would it be like? That was convicting. 
Most women in this room, you long to hear those words. You long to hear that affirmation. And husbands in the room, what does it look like to protect my wife? When every commercial or everything she scrolls past on Instagram tells her her body isn't good enough, her, her, her facial features aren't good enough, her pores are too big, whatever that means. Um, like I thought they all were the same size. I guess they're not. Um, whatever. When all the world is telling her that she's not good enough, when she goes to the other kid's birthday party and it's like just magical and it's so elaborate and attention to detail and she walks and she gets back in the car and she feels not good. Your words of affirmation, your words of, of calling her into her God-given identity that begin to put a shield around her. And fellas, listen, this is actually the part of things that you, you used to be good at. Like this is where you're like, baby, you look so good today. Like I'm going I'm to I'm I'm get very practical all up in your stuff right here. Guys, I've told you this before. Your wife... When the day you marry her, she is your standard definition of hotness. See, man, in the room, like, we get this thing. Like, I could show you some screens, some images on the screen. I'm definitely not going to do that. That would be a, a disaster. But I could show you some images on the screen. And I could ask you the simple question, is, is she hot or not? And everybody in the room, like, I could, I could kind of have the room on. But if you're married in this room... When you say that your wife is your wife, when you give those vows, what happens then is the, the swimsuit model no longer becomes your definition of hotness. The thing that you see on Instagram or the thing you see on the ad on the side of the thing, that no longer becomes your standard definition of hotness. So what this means for me, practically speaking, at 22, when Jessica and I stood there at the altar and got married, she was my standard definition of hotness at 22. After Titus was born in 2014, she was still my standard definition of hotness. This is what it looks like. Now, had it changed from 2011 when we got married? Yep. Was it hotter then than it was then? Yep. Because she is my standard definition of hotness. It is not based on the whims of what's out there in the world. It is based on who my bride is. And by the words I say that affirm that that's really what's going on inside of my heart... That protects her from this onslaught of this world because she knows that it's out there hunting for you. She's trying to measure up to that. And so if by your words, by your touch, and again, lead with words, follow with touch. Um, <laughs> by the way you do those things, it will put a protective shield around her identity in Christ to protect her from every voice in this world that tells her that she is not for you. So that's the spiritual protection side. Let's talk about the physical protection side. I think I don't have to spend a lot of time here because fellas, like this is kind of obvious, right? Like if there's a, a, a noise downstairs, if I'm going to be a physical protector in my home, I'm not going to go, wife, we're just so equal. I went, <laughs> I went last time. It's your turn. <laughs> you know. No, you, you lead the way. And listen, I heard John Piper talked about it like this. He said, even if your wife has a black belt in karate, or she's, she, she's a Navy SEAL, whatever, you still lead the way. Now, she may step over your dead body to finally kill the intruder, <laughs> but like, you're going to lead the way because you're a man of God. Now, track with me, fellas, in this, because here's what you, like, this is the, when it comes to leading our wives spiritually or our future wives spiritually, this is the part that like we want to. Like, like I wish somebody would mess around and hit on my wife when we're at Target today. Like sometimes, you know, I don't know, you have a good week and you're like, yeah, I wish somebody would. You know, you, you kind of like that. And you feel amped and ready to be this physical protector to her. Somebody, come on, break in this house. Some of you got like just guns and guns and guns. I wish somebody would break into my house. Like, yeah, come on. And, and, and look, I'm gonna be, uh, it's great, great that you're doing that. I'm not saying don't do that. But friend, I would call you into caution that your propensity to lean into physical protection first may be because you've bought into this macho man version of manliness that is solely based on how you can physically beat up another guy who opposes a threat to you or her. And when you get distracted by all this outside stuff, you miss out on Satan, your invisible enemy who's sneaking into her life. Because you're consumed sitting around waiting. I mean, honestly, like even those of you guys who, you know, who wives are out there going to those places or, or in places where they're susceptible to being hit on. Like how many times has that actually happened? But I'm telling you, you probably haven't had a burglar come and knock down your door that you've had to go physically protect her. 
And that may not ever happen. But I'm telling you, today she has already faced it. She will face it tomorrow. She will face it the next day. However angry a guy hitting on your wife or trying to manipulate your wife or take advantage of your wife in physicality you would get, I'm telling you, fellas, Satan is doing it right now. Get that angry that your unseen enemy is doing it to her. See where he's doing it to her. Ask her the investigative questions to see how it's happening. And then, like, there's some of this, I'm going to walk you into my family. Um, some of the things we've had to say is, you know, as you're investigating that, well, honey, maybe not forever, but for right now, if this app is making you feel that way, we don't need it. Let's get off of it. If it only triggers negative thoughts and emotions, if this is a place where you feel less than, well, we don't need more of that in our life. That's how we protect. So that's the protect side. Let's lean into the next side, how we see Jesus providing. Going down to verse 28. We saw how he protects. Now we see how Jesus provides. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So again, I love myself. I provide for myself. I love food. I'm going to feed myself. Verse 29, he says, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. Now, here's where we see Jesus doing it. Here's how we see Jesus providing. He nourishes and cares for it just as Christ does the church. So he's saying Christ nourishes and cares for the church. That is how he provides for the church. He nourishes and cares for the church. And here's why. It goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning. It's part of his body. It's his. He's one with it. To just say, I'm just going to take care of the head would be the most negligent thing he could do because the body would not be able to operate the way it needs to operate. He nourishes and cares for the body. And husbands, that's our call too. What does it look like to provide? It looks like spiritual provision. I mean, it looks like spiritual protection. And to provide spiritually, it means that I am the key nourisher and cherisher of my wife and of my kids. I lead the way in nourishing them with the spiritual food. Now, if you don't know spiritual food, fellas, you can't provide it. This is where we've got to be in the word. We've got to be there. We've got to put our noses in this book. We've got to get out of the things that we're in that are wasting our time and get into God's word and let it change us, let it transform us so that we are leading out of our relationship with Jesus. That's how we provide spiritually. Now, practically speaking, I think what this means is you lead this way in your family. You lead the way in praying for your family, in speaking God's word over your family. You lead the way even in devotionals for your family. Man, I didn't bring it up here. Shoot. Um, there's this app called ParentQ. Fellas in the room, I'm going to highly, highly um, encourage you to get this app called ParentQ. It's done in partnership with us and the place we get our children's ministry curriculum from. And so if you have a kid, honestly, if you have a kid from birth to 18, I cannot encourage you more to get this. You download the app. What it will do is actually show you how much time you have left with your kid before they turn 18. Now, grandparents in the room, you can do this too. Now be prepared. It'll break your heart when you realize you only have, you know, 403 weeks left with your kid before they graduate and go to college. Right now, I looked at Ezra's this morning. I have 669 weeks left with Ezra before he turns 18 and graduates and goes to college. Now, what's awesome about this app is it tells me that time. And now that I know how much time I have left with him, I will make the time I have with him now matter more because I'm more intentional with it because I know how much is left. You ever watched a football or basketball game, fellas? At the end of the game, what do things get? Way more intense because time is running out. And it's time for some of us men in this room to bring fourth quarter intensity to our families. You bring fourth quarter intensity to your workplace. I heard it said this week, man, again, very convicting stuff. If you brought the same level of attentiveness, care, and tenacity that you bring to your family, to your workplace, how long would it be before you got fired? 
All right, so if you're one of those guys, you just go home. I, I did my job. I put money on. I put food on this food that we're eating. I paid for this house. I paid for. And I go home. And I just kick my feet up and I let the wife do all the other type of stuff. You're not like that at the job you go to. I'm telling you, you, your job after nine to five is over is the most important job you have, guys. You would have still been working if you didn't have a family. So don't put work as your finish line. Put your family thriving under the gospel, your finish line. Say, I'm gonna do everything I can to, in the best way possible, provide for them. And I know it's not easy, and that's why, back to the app, the app has all these things. It tells you how much time you have left, and it gives you, like, here's what's wild, is it actually connects back up to what we're teaching. And so you can go to the church in there, and you can say, oh, we go to McDonough Christian Church. And we have exactly in there what we're teaching your kid. You can see the memory verse that they have. You can have times throughout the course of the day where you can talk to them. It tells you what to do when you're riding in the car. It tells you what to do during bath time. It tells you what to do um, during cuddle time. It has all these different things. It's us saying, my call, like as your pastor, is to do everything that I can to make sure that no man of God could ever say, my church didn't do everything possible to help me be the godly husband and the godly parent that I could be. That's part of our unique call as a church. There may be a hundred different other ones in our community that aren't in with that, but that's part of our call. We're gonna do everything we can to help as many parents as possible, help as many marriages as possible, be what they can be in Christ. So what does it look like to, from the other side, to actually be people who physically provide for our family. Husbands in the room, simply put, get a job and give it the absolute best that you can so that your family doesn't have to worry and stress about money. That's what it looks like to be a physical provider for your home. To go out, to just like Adam did, to till the ground, to work the clay, bring home the fruit, so your family can thrive. To work with integrity at your job so that you get promotion after promotion after promotion so that your family does not have to worry about finances, part A and part B, so that your family can experience the joy of being generous. So that you have an opportunity to show your kids what it looks like to give. Now I know there are exceptions to this. There are men in this room who are disabled and you, and you can't go be that guy. Some of you may go to grad school. You have studies where you, you don't have the opportunity to be the primary breadwinner in your family. Some of you, your wives just has a, a crazy gift or talent or ability or, or, or job that she has that makes it to where you, you, there, there's no way you're going to catch her. All right? That's okay. That's not, that's not a sin. I'm not saying that this is thus saith the Lord. The husband has to, at the end of the month, have a bigger uh, income than she does. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you have the responsibility, though, to make sure that your family is provided for. That is your responsibility. So to go back to the box, men in the room, if you had to say which of these you're struggling the most with right now, providing physically or protecting physically, or providing spiritually or protecting spiritually, which of these are you struggling with the most right now? Ladies, which do you think your husband is struggling with the most right now? Don't say it out loud. This, this is what you talk about on date night. <clears throat> Men in the room, which one of these do you think you're crushing it at? Like, which one of these do you feel like, I got that one down? We went through this last winter at men's ministry, and I showed the same thing, and we had about 60 guys in the room. And I said, all right, fellas, if you think this is the one you're crushing it in, raise your hand. And the whole room went, mm-hmm. Because that's where most of us are at, guys. And look, this, uh, all of these have to happen for your family to thrive. This row actually has to happen first, all right? Good luck leading them spiritually if they're starving, all right? Good luck leading them spiritually if they're duct taping the basement because you didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, all right? These have to happen first, but these are the most important. You being able to spiritually protect. You being able to spiritually provide. And my call for you is to understand that, guys, 
if we just leave it here, our families are in grave danger. And my hope and my prayer is that we can do everything we can to come alongside of you to help you be the spiritual provider and the spiritual protector that God is calling you to be. As we get ready to turn and go into a time of communion, I now invite everybody to this box and remind you that Jesus, as the ultimate groom for us as the church, this is what he does for us. And I would even invite you to ask a question, Jesus, where am I letting you do this for me? Jesus, am I really letting you provide for me physically? Or am I trying to do that for myself? Jesus, am I really letting you protect me physically? Or am I trying to do that myself? Jesus, am I really letting you spiritually provide for me? Or am I trying to do that myself? Jesus, are you really spiritually protecting me? And I'm telling you, if you're a man of God in this room especially, and this is who you wanna be for your wife, but you are not getting this from Christ, you have not yet let Christ put this into you, then friend, you cannot and you will not be ever able to give something that you have not yet received from Christ. You will fail. You don't fully surrender to letting Jesus be this for you. And today you wanna surrender your life to him to let him be your spiritual provider, your spiritual protector, your physical provider, your physical protector. I would invite you to give your life to him. I'd love to baptize you. You can fill that out on the next steps card if that's a step you wanna take today into that relationship with him. For those of you in the room, I pray that you are married. You take this box and you go have a, a good heartfelt conversation. Let the truth come out. Be open and be honest and express what you need. Express what you hope. As we receive communion today, I pray that you see not just a thought of sacrificial love, but something you can taste of sacrificial love. A love that was willing to lay down his life, give it for you. Pray and love, taste and see how good he is. Jesus, we love you. Praise you for your glory. Fully on display as your body was broken for us. And we taste this as we eat of the bread. And we look to the cross and see your blood poured out for us. And we taste this and it becomes part of us as we drink the juice today. Jesus remind us that it is by your torn apart body that you are making us one. That when us as your children lean into this truth we are made one in you that we made whole in you the implications on our everyday lives are unimaginable so we surrender to you and you can do it Jesus in us and through us your name